Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I am your host, Sean Needham, along with my beautiful wife, Janet, and we are streaming live from the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy Studio, and we are super excited to have Jennifer Say on our podcast today. And it's perfect timing because exactly three years ago today, all the schools were shut down in the United States. Yeah, that's right. You remember that? You remember that insanity? You remember that craziness? Um, all the schools shut down to prevent the spread of COVID, which now we know didn't work. Jennifer was very outspoken from the get-go, and she wasn't liked too well for it. Um, well, now when, when it comes out and we look at it, um, we know that the lockdowns didn't work, and in fact, they did a lot of harm. So without further ado, Jennifer, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So I'm going to stream a little article uh, on our podcast here and tell us a little bit about this. Sure. I, I sort of have to tell my story briefly for it to make sense. Yes, please. Um, so I worked at Levi's for close to 23 years. I started in 1999 as an entry-level marketing assistant. I loved the company and the brand, and I climbed my way all the way up the ladder. I became the chief marketing officer in, what year, 2013, and held that role for eight years, was successful in the role, helped the company um, through a, uh, an IPO, um, and eventually even got promoted to brand president, which meant overseeing not just marketing, but all the products that the Levi's brand makes, everything that people love to wear. I oversaw design and merchandising, which is sort of the business side of product and retail and a lot of stuff. I mean, like thousands of people on my team in 120 countries. Um, and as the brand president, you know, I reported to the CEO and was generally considered next in line for CEO. I mean, I had to not screw it up, right? I had to do a right. good job, but it was sort of the obvious seat to take over for a CEO that had been in place for over a decade and was getting ready to retire. And I was a well-loved, I, you know, I was a beloved employee. Um, I, I knew everyone, you know, I, I loved it. I loved the brand. I embodied the brand and the culture, I thought. Um, but in March, on March 13th in 2020, when schools closed from the very beginning, I was opposed and was very outspoken. I lived in San Francisco at the time. I don't anymore. I had lived there 30 years. Um, and, you know, in terms of what that looks like and me being outspoken, um, you know, it started on social media and I didn't really have much of a following. Like I didn't really think anybody was listening anyway. Um, I built one over the course of the last, um, you know, a few years, given my advocacy on the subject. Um, but we were really in the minority. You know, there were, if you lived in San Francisco, a deep blue city and a deep blue state, you know, there was no other view than lockdown until zero COVID. And if you want anything else, you're a racist and a murderer and you don't care if teachers die. And so I was an, I was a heretic. I mean, I was just evil. Alt-right, QAnon, psychopath. <laughs> um, even though I've been a Democrat my entire life, I mean, it was just it was it was madness. But I was so enraged and incensed by this harmful policy—not just closed schools, but all the restrictions placed on children. And you know, from my perspective, the most onerous restrictions have been placed on children throughout all of this: closed schools, closed playgrounds, um, masking of toddlers. No other country on earth 
has mass two-year-olds, like let alone that it's not effective for adults, like really a two-year-old in diapers who can't put their shoes on the right feet. And my daughter was three when this started. So she spent her preschool experience when she's learning to speak, wearing a mask. And so I was very outspoken about all the restrictions to children. I was opposed to all of it. I felt all of it was ineffective, but I focused on kids because I because I knew it was controversial and I thought kids were sort of like a bridge. Like maybe right. we could all agree that we don't want to harm children. Um, and so, you know, I started my advocacy on social media, but I, you know, eventually got a little known for it. And I wrote op-eds and I led rallies in San Francisco and, you know, attended school board meetings and was outspoken. And eventually one of my peers at Levi's uh, reached out to me six months in and said, people are noticing they don't like it. You need to probably not do this. And I said, why? Children are being harmed. 50,000 public school children in San Francisco, the majority of whom are low income, are not able to attend school while your kids, private school kids, are going to school. Are you telling me I can't advocate for what your children have? And my kids do go to public school, to be clear. And I'm the only executive that had children in San Francisco public schools. So it just became this conflict over the course of 18 months with various people calling me and telling me I couldn't say the things that I was saying, all while they sent their own children to in-person private. And the more they told me I couldn't, the more angry I got because it was so hypocritical. And, you know, I built more of a following over time and it was really rough in the company. I mean, I had to do an apology tour. I was accused of being a racist and a conspiracy theorist. I had to, or I was asked to kind of pledge allegiance. You know, I was asked, are you with us or against us? Whose team are you on? Are you the enemy? And it just went like that for basically two full years until I was told there was no longer a place for me in the company. So sorry, that's the sort of version of what happened. And rather than accept, they offered me severance to quit and be quiet or to walk away and stay quiet. And I did not accept that severance because I wanted to talk equally as alarming as the closed school is the censorship that really allowed for this to happen, the manufactured consensus and the censorship. And I was not about to give up my voice. So the article you flashed is one year since I quit publicly. And really I recount how everything has changed in a year. You know, a year later in February of 2023, we now accept that closed schools were harmful and dangerous. We now accept that that was probably a mistake. And yet, even though we accept it and everything I advocated for doesn't seem so bad right now, I still have no job and there's still no accountability for the people that set these egregiously harmful policies. So that's kind of the summary of the article. Well, and thank you for your backstory. I, I, I appreciate that. And I mean, what what a powerful statement too, to not accept the severance pay, um, to basically shut you up literally, which in this time of censorship and we deal with it every day we got censored over the weekend we interviewed um, john stockton who you may have heard of before and he's been very outspoken too and anybody like yourself that's in a prominent position that's been outspoken they get called all kinds of names and you know and run through the ringer and and, and um you know we got censored um basically because he shared his passion for the subject and why he's passionate about it and he's passionate about it because he cares about his kids and grandkids he said Right. And he, we get censored for that. I mean, it, yeah. it's it's unreal. Um, so, go ahead and stream that article again, um, Yada. So, one thing I, I, in this article, it talks about no apologies. 
So, and it does specifically say Democrats, but um, I'm going to let Janet go on with this. What do you think about apologies from politicians with about all this, Janet? Well, from the very start, I feel like it's all the above are responsible. There's very few that have spoke out publicly to to talk about the truth of the matter or been bold enough to say what they feel or think. And so I think that the responsibility is on all shoulders that chose whether they believed it or not to take any responsibility for their position because it, it it's not I mean we're talking about children but in my circumstance I feel like the elderly were put in prison. Oh. And I and the agree. stories that my mother can tell me is heart-wrenching. So um we have young teen boys that that made it through and they were at the end our youngest was at the very end and he he survived getting through it but at the same time if you make a mistake as a politician, a lot of times it's just, oh, oh, well, and they still have your job. But in your case, because you chose to stand up for something that you totally believed in, and I'm sure you did it in a very respectful manner and way, somehow you became public enemy number one. I did. None of it mattered. The arc of your life doesn't matter. The um, things that you've done the things you've achieved, you know, not just in the context of the business and everything I had done at Levi's to help bring that brand back, but how I had treated the people there who I worked with, helped build careers with and for, and in conjunction with um, friends, life, you know, I had friends at Levi's over 20 years. I went to weddings and baby showers and even funerals. Like these people were in my life and it didn't matter. I took this one stance that veered from the mainstream narrative, which was the Democrat narrative, let's be clear, as it pertains to COVID, because I agree with you, no politicians on any side of the fence apologize for anything. Um, but when it comes to lockdowns and school closures and mandates and all of it, those were Democratic-led policies that were discriminatory and harmful. And while there's some acknowledgement now that they were harmful, it is all sort of in the context of, oh, it was the fog of war. We couldn't have known. You know, they didn't do anything wrong. And here's the thing. We did know. I knew. And I'm just like a regular mom. And I read the data and I obsessively read every study. And I knew. I knew that not only was this going to be ineffective, but that we were asking children to carry the heaviest burden when they were at the least risk, if any. And it should never have been a math problem. This was an ethics challenge. And what we decided was, I believe, a moral abomination to ask children to shield the rest of the world and carry this burden. We are supposed to protect them, not the other way around. Um, in the you know CDC's pre-pandemic playbook, schools are never supposed to close for more than a few weeks at a time, even for something with a much, much higher fatality rate because the harms are too great. And other countries chose the right way. Not just Sweden, who never shut primary schools, but Denmark, I think after only three weeks, reopened the schools because they said it's too harmful to children. It's too harmful to essential workers who need to work. Um, and so, no, no one's ever going to admit that they were wrong because that it, it's horrible. I mean, the harms are just too, too, too egregious. And, and yet, someone like me who dared to say it, who dared to say that school closures were going to be harmful before the New York Times and CNN admitted it, 
um, was made an example of. And, you know, the names that were called at a certain point in this process of me um, contesting school closures, it became very clear that I was not going to stop. I was asked so many times and didn't. Like, it was kind of clear. And yet, you know, pillaring me, you know, dragging me in the public square and calling me every sort of horrible name that you could think of, and it was done in very public company-wide meetings, it certainly discouraged anyone else from speaking out. Because who wants to put themselves in that position of being ostracized, possibly losing their job? Um, and, 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 you know, the lockdowners, the lockdown forever crowd and the keep the schools closed forever crowd, they position themselves as having the moral high ground. And the rest of us who dared dissent as evil, murderous, alt-right psychopaths. And so who's going to volunteer to be in that group? You know, I, at a, in the beginning, I tried to defend myself and explain why it wasn't those things. I stopped doing it because I realized they didn't really want to have a conversation. They wanted to vilify me so everybody else would stay quiet. And it worked. That is how consensus was manufactured. There was never consensus amongst doctors or just everyday folks that this was the right path. But if you silence everybody that asks a question, it does appear there is consensus, which is, you know, what happened. Exactly. And, you know, speaking of doctors, I mean, they, they censored doctors too. I mean, if doctors yep. went against the narrative, they ran them through the ringer and they had, they challenged their license. And, you know, we, we had, we've interviewed many doctors that, you know, have had to fight to keep their license because their license is basically on the line because of their opinions about, about COVID. And really all that was, was about taking care of patients. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in some states like California, they're, you know, they've tried to codify that, that, you know, you could lose your license as a doctor if you communicate anything that, well, they call it COVID misinformation. But what that could look like is, you know, maybe you're telling a patient that it, with a young child, they don't need to be vaccinated. That's considered by the powers that be COVID misinformation. A doctor could lose their license for that. Now there's a stay, so it's not in play right now in California, but that's, um yeah, taking patient care completely out of the hands of doctors, unable to sort of personalize that care and work with 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 uh, with a patient on an individual basis. But that's what all of this was about. You know, it was this one size fits all mandate for everyone. Um, it flattened us all into sort of you know just you have you have to sort of set yourself aside and do what is best for the community. Never mind that it wasn't best for the community. It was only ever best for the people that could afford it, right? Yeah. We shut small businesses while allowing big box stores to, to stay open. The well-to-do were able to send their kids to private school or do private pods in their home. So it was the poor and the low income um, who were purported to be the ones that were being protected, that were harmed in the end and continue to be harmed because we see now inflation as a result of lockdowns um, and giving bank, out money bank that failures. we didn't have. Bank failures. Bank failures. I, I believe it all stems, you know, certainly there are other um, other very complicated causes and I'm not a banker and would yeah. um, pro- profess to be, but you cannot shut down the world and not expect there to be long-term consequences. We shut down the world. We gave out money we didn't have that prompted inflation and now here we are. And let's not forget that the politicians never stopped traveling. No. Um, the politicians never stopped going to baseball games. And in fact, I remember seeing a picture of Anthony Fauci in a baseball game with three of his cronies all by themselves in a stadium that was not, well, it was empty. 
drinking oh, water with yeah yeah yes. no one ever with stopped. his mask off of course <laughs> and it's unreal we let it happen and so what? thank you jennifer for standing up because you know, we need you, more people like you do you remember there was like a streak and it was like ran from like late 2020 to the end of 21 and it was all this sort of hypocrisy from government leaders who were demanding we stay at home there was just one story after another it wasn't just gavin newsom governor of california at front French laundry eating $800 meals. It was the mayor of Denver and it was um, everyone, they're going to Mexico and they're whatever, Whitmer and wherever she is, I can't even remember. <laughs> um, they were all in Florida. They, yeah, I mean, I, I, for, for a long time, I was actually keeping a list because I thought at some point this would bother people and that they would sort of understand the hypocrisy meant these people telling you you have to stay home forever while they do whatever they want means they're not actually afraid. They don't, they, they aren't afraid. They don't actually believe this is necessary. If they don't believe it's necessary for them, they don't believe it's necessary for you. But no one cared. You had, you know, Gavin Maskless at the Super Bowl. You know, the, the Super Bowl. Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi the getting done. the hair done. Yeah. Do you remember I that mean, one? Yeah. In, 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 in February of 2022, the Super Bowl in Los Angeles at SoFi Stadium, unmasked. Everyone could do whatever they wanted. The next day, Two-year-olds had to go to preschool in masks. Unreal, right? Like, I, I don't understand, and I will never understand why that doesn't enrage people. I, I don't, well, I will it, never it, get it. I, I know, it, it, it's hard for me to understand too. And, and here's the reality. Anytime the government makes rules that they don't follow themselves, I mean, the people really, really need to be suspicious. And there's a lot of rules they make that they don't follow. You know, whether it be climate change stuff or whether it be COVID stuff that they make for us peasants, but not for them elitists to follow. Um, and really what we really need to get down to, and this is my opinion with most any law, rule, regulation, or just general, general living is like anytime we give up our individual liberty. The government wants to give us up our individual liberty to, you know, for the, for, for the good of others, be very, very scared of the government. And when they throw your children in there, oh, Sean, it's for the children. It's for the good of the children. You've got to do this because for the good of the children, we should be very, very weary because I, governments I, in history have used that to control what, people. Well, that's what I was going to say. But what I find so alarming and I did not ever think I would see in this country, and I guess this is how naive and dumb I was before, people were all too willing to trade their freedom for a sense of safety, which is really how all sort of tyrannical regimes operate. You know, yes. we'll offer yes. you safety. You give us yep all your freedom. Um, and I, I was stunned that people were actually willing, very willing, not not just to, to make that trade, but to demonize anybody who wasn't. Um, you yeah. know, you remember it was freedom. If you wanted freedom, if you wanted to be able to have a holiday with your family, go to church, send your child to school, um, have a birthday party, you were an idiot freedom lover. I thought that's what this country was founded on. I didn't think, I mean, there's reports now that are coming out. They're so interesting. It's like what was happening in places like the Bay Area in terms of um, neighbors snitching on neighbors. The police reports are coming out. Um, I mean, you were encouraged, I can say, in San Francisco to yep. report on your neighbor. We used to jump the fence into playgrounds. You know, they were yellow taped for nine months. You couldn't go. We would take our children to the playground. And 
we always could see somebody, there was like a special app set up where they could call the police. Um, we knew when it was happening, you'd see some person off to the side on their phone looking at us. And two minutes later, the police would come. Um, they set up this snitch culture that I just, I'm still astonished that Americans went in on whole hog wholeheartedly. I mean, it was like the Stasi. I, I just, I, I, I never thought I'd see that in my lifetime here. It's well, disheartening. We haven't, we haven't paid the price in this generation, you know, That's like true. my, my, my grandfather, my grandmother, my uncles and dad, you know, that generation of the World War II, they're almost gone. You know, they're, they're the people that saw what happened in fascism and socialism and communism. And, and I do think like Sean and I, we do have some friends that have came from countries that, you know, have experienced what we were seeing and they were totally like, don't you guys get this? <laughs> Hello. Yeah. But I think the unfortunate thing about Americans is that, you know, this is really not much different than during the Revolutionary War. Not everybody was on board to be yeah. fighting, you know, it was just the people that, you know, were willing to stand up. And I think, what was that? Just like 10% of the, the yeah. you know, I, a small group of people said no more. And yeah. their freedoms were squashed less than what ours were now. So yeah, I think hey. that I think you raise a really good point. And one of the things I have learned over the last few years, which I did not know, even though I was in my fifties, is I think there's a very small most people would rather stand with the crowd, take comfort in the crowd, yeah. wrap themselves in virtue that that crowd offers falsely, mm -hmm. that stand apart and be right and uphold truth. It is it, and you know what? It's unpleasant. It really is. I have lost my city that I lived in for over 30 years. I've lost almost every single friend I ever had because they take issue with my views. I lost my job. My life is pretty unrecognizable. You know, I never imagined this would be my life right now. Um, and so I'm not going to argue that it's not unpleasant. It is unpleasant, but I will not further a lie. And this whole thing was premised on a lie. It was a lie that school closures weren't harmful, that opening schools was racist, that, you know, that, that the risk to all was equal. The risk was always age stratified. You know, it was it, just one lie after the next. And I, I, you know, at one point in my, you know, biting back the, the, about a year into it, I was talking with our head of HR who was telling me I needed to cool it. And I was talking about other issues outside of kids. Um, you know, there was that whole sort of moment where doctors were threatening not to treat the unvaccinated. And I had said, mm -hmm. made a few statements about that. And she, I said, she said, you can't say that. And I was like, why? It's so horrifically unethical. It's a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. You know, there's there's movies and books about how at the beginning of the AIDS crisis, you know, the nurses who refused to treat patients, like they're seen as evil and demonic now that that was like a horrible yeah. thing. And she said, I know you're right, but you can't say it. And that was this moment for me that I was like, that's what they think. It doesn't matter. You cannot say a thing. And most people, probably 80% would rather be with the crowd, wrap themselves in false virtue, be cruel and unusual in their punishment of anyone who dissents, then stand apart and actually uphold the truth. They just would. That's most people across geographies, eras, time. The, the, the good news is 
if we're loud enough and we break through, people do come around and they will stand with you. And, you know, I had this experience. I was an elite gymnast as a child. It was a very abusive environment. I spoke out about it many, many years later and when I was 40. And I was vilified. I was a liar and a grifter. And I was, you know, tarnishing the names of good men, good coaches who, by the way, were pedophiles. Um, and 10 years later, everyone came around and they pretended that they always had stood by me and supported me in that message. So it's just unfortunate. Someone has to go first and going first in this instant because journalists completely failed in their duty. It meant going before the New York times. It meant going before CNN and it meant, you know, standing with those who were willing to fight for freedom. And there just weren't that many of us. The Republicans weren't even in the beginning. No, and I I think they were complicit in the beginning, and still I wish they would apologize now. I I think I think Republicans and Democrats, all politicians that were um, responsible, should be held accountable for it um, from from the top down for sure. And I I even say that in local health districts and 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 cities, and you know for city lockdowns and and things like that, or local companies where local companies made their employees do certain things, like get a vaccine or you know wear masks and um i think they need i think that the the ceos of those companies need to be held responsible they do they will never apologize it will you know the most we'll ever get is you know it was the fog of war we were doing the best we could and we were trying to protect our employees yeah i just i wrote a piece yesterday about a levi's employee that was fired for being unable to wear a mask she was a victim of violent sexual assault and had been strangled and you know muzzled and literally mask wearing gave her severe panic attacks um she worked on the selling floor she was a retail um you know store manager and she offered up all sorts of you know compensatory solutions working in the back room you know doing her office work at home and they said no you are a public health risk you need to go this is an hr functionary this is not a medical professional um this woman was literally fired for being unable to wear a mask by a company that says we uplift women, we care about mental health, right. we care about all these things. And that, that hypocrisy to me is just so glaring. But I agree with you. I would like to see that too. I have resigned myself to the fact that we will not ever see that. And that the best we can do is, you know, I'll give you one example. The San Francisco school board was recalled in February or three members yep. were recalled. That's how we have to do it. These people, the harder part is public health because they're appointed. <laughs> so I don't know what we do about that. Yeah. Um, I don't know what we do there. But, you know, you're right to bring up local public health. They were the most tyrannical. Yeah. Uh, and, and some of the governors would hide behind, instead of taking oh, yeah. responsibility themselves, they would hide behind other individuals, mm -hmm. some public health entity or some departmental licensing entity or something. They're the ones that are shutting the businesses down. Not me, not the governor. I mean, our governor is guilty of that. Everybody um, did this. It was like this, like, yeah. you know, the governor said, well, public health advised. Public health says we don't make the decisions. The school board says, well, we don't decide. Public health is telling us to do it. Like who decided that? Why were the schools in California closed 18 months if no one decided it? Well, I, I, I'm going to say one thing that was really positive, I think, about what 
what we went through is this is the first time in a long time that parents actually looked at what their children were being instructed with. I mean, the curriculum started to be criticized and looked at. There were parents that actually started showing up to the meetings and being vocal about what their thoughts were. So that I have to praise that because that was a wake up call. And I think the other thing that started to happen too is, is that a few people from all different aspects of life, whether it be healthcare or someone in your, you know, were, since they were being ostracized and thrown out there as scapegoats, you know, you can't throw everybody out there. I mean, if you're looking at, if you're looking at John Stockton, for example, exemplary basketball player for nearly 20 some years, I don't think I ever heard anything in the paper ever about his career of, you know, how can you throw someone like yourself and him all in as being, um, you know, demonic and zombies and, you know, you can't because after time that story gets old. I mean, you can only do for a short period of time before people start going, "Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm, I've heard this, I've saw this. I think they're not there yet, though. I have to be honest. Like, I think people, like, even now, as I, you know, I'm a year out from having resigned from my job, I promised myself and my husband I would take a year to kind of recover because it was really, obviously, two tough years brought with conflict. I failed my husband in not worrying. I, of course, worried. And then, you know, trying to figure out how to get back to work. But I did write a book and made most of a film. So I, I was productive, but I worried. Um, I, I find as I go out there and I, you know, I, I talk to companies and interview, like they're, I'm scary still. Like, even though there's acknowledgement that I was correct, they don't understand why I had to say it. They, they want me to apologize. They want me to apologize. I got ahead right. of my skis. I said it. Uh, you know, the general feeling is, okay, you may have been right, but you were right for the wrong reasons. So you should still apologize. And it makes me sort of unpredictable. I don't read from a script. I say what I think. I decide what I think myself. I write my own tweets. I write my own books. Like that is not something they like in corporate America. Let's be clear. (laughs) A leader that's pushed in their own voice. And so even if I was right, it doesn't like, I'm not sort of thought of as somebody who had great insight and, you know, was brave or courageous enough to do it. I'm seen as someone who is unwieldy and dangerous, I think, if I were to, you know, and, and unapologetic, I, I won't, I won't apologize. But, you know, my answer when people ask me, you know, why would you do this? Why was this the hill you were willing to die on? I, all I can say is, why weren't you? I really don't understand why you weren't. If you won't die on a hill for truth and children, then you have no principles. You have no morals. And let's just, let's just make this clear, Jennifer, is that, you were fighting for them. You were fighting for everybody. I mean, you're not saying that, you know, it's just like when Janet and I talked about masks and talked about vaccines, it should be an individual's right. You should let people make their own decisions. And you're fighting for those same people that might not agree with you because you stand up and fight for freedom of speech and 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 say what you want to say, you are essentially fighting for them. Even if they're not on your side, you're still oh, fighting yeah. for them. Yeah. I I mean, there's nothing more alarming to me um, than people that are actually defending censorship right now, which we're seeing, right? I mean, we saw it in the testimony last week and the way that, you know, journalists Taibbi and Schellenberger were attacked. They're actually 
the Democrats are defending censorship. Even though the things they were censoring at this point as misinformation have clearly are true, I mean, I I, are were patently true. I mean, my own husband was um, my husband was banished, kicked off Twitter for about a year for saying that the vaccines had side effects, like true things that were in headlines and were actually in right. Pfizer's own writings. Right. You know, right. Um, right. but it violated the narrative and the narrative. You know. What's decided first is the narrative. Everyone needs to get vaccinated. Vaccines are safe. If you say a true thing that violates the narrative, you will be punished with the full force of government, um, corporations, you you know, uh, social ostracization. You will just be you will be punished. It's 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 terrifying. But to me, it's terrifying enough not to accept it, to feel safe, but to fight it with everything I have, because that is not a country that I want to live in. That is not a country. And we we were watching Canada. Oh, they were worse. Yeah. Mm, Australia. Yeah. Australia. Really bad. So let's get some, if you don't mind, Jennifer, we've got lots of comments coming through on some of our platforms. Let's stream the first one really quick. uh, Yahada. I'm looking uh, at yeah, and it's like, I think this guy says, oh, sounds familiar. She had an interview with the Epoch Times. So you've been interviewed by the Epoch Times. Now let's go to um, Jack Brown. So Sorry if all, it's I redundant. Think, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Go ahead and stream Jack's. Great interview. I want to thank you, Jack, for putting Jennifer and I in touch with each other. Thank you so much. Um, we She did at the first first show um, talk about the uh, her gymnastics history and... Um, and, you know, really, Jennifer, you were fighting for children's rights 10 years ago when you came out about what was going on in, in the USA Gymnastics thing. I mean, really. Yeah, it was in 2008 that my book was published. I wrote it in 2006, and it was really about the abuse of children and the Olympic movement, gymnastics specifically, but it's it's broader than that. And, you know, that is one of the things, as my peers in the company would, you know, urge me and insist that I need to stop, I would say this is very consistent with views of mine that you have supported in the past you know it is very consistent i am it's it's broader you know it's not just in the athletic community but broader than that but advocating for children i mean the fact is is the only reason they didn't want me to say it is because some people didn't like it it violated the narrative um and people got angry about it. A very small percentage of employees were very vocal. And then there was the sort of social media mob. They were fine sending their kids to school. Their children were all in school. So again, it was never on the merits. It was about not making people mad, not saying a true thing that upset people. Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to not say the truth because it's upsetting to people. Not when children are at stake, not when speech is at stake. Anyway, yes, it was an extension of my child advocacy, but it's interesting. The story I told about how at first when I spoke out about the sport and was, you know, my first cancellation, I kind of, you know, because everyone came around 10 years later, I kept that close to me as I was doing this, right? Like I kept thinking like, oh, if you speak truth and you make sense and you're diplomatic and you're nice and you're, you know, all these things, people will come along eventually and they will, but yeah. it wasn't soon enough. You know, I, I, yeah. I, they, they, they beat me to the buzzer and I lost my job. <laughs> so. And Cynthia, Cynthia, one of our loyal viewers. Thank you, Jennifer, for speaking out. Um, 
and go ahead and stream Lee Pence's Yahada. Lee, uh, Miss Say, if you're in a position uh, to disclose, do you have a sense of the percentage of workforce that was separated from Levi's for result of the, of the school lockdown issue? Only me. You know those numbers at all? I mean, we had um, wide, we had layoffs in 2020 because the business was incredibly challenged with stores closed. We laid off 15% of the workforce while um, the CEO cashed out $43 million in stock because the layoffs bolstered the stock price. But no one was separated from Levi's other than me. Um, there were a handful of employees, and I don't, I can't say that I know the number, um, that were let go they would say they chose not to work there anymore because they refused vaccination. Yeah. Yeah. But it was not so a large were, number. Yeah. You were in a small, you were in a small company for sure. Yeah. I mean, it was San Francisco. Right. And I mean, right? the other thing I would, <laughs> I would say about the Vax mandate at, at Levi's, which was only just removed on, I believe February 1st. Um, it wasn't the whole company. It was only corporate in San Francisco. So, you know, there were offices, there was an office in Texas, there's distribution centers in Las Vegas and Kentucky, and there's stores across the country. There was no VAX mandate for those people, only San Francisco, which says it was never really about safety, which we all know because it's not even effective. It was about compliance for those who would comply. Those other places, they wouldn't have complied. They would have lost all their staff. Yeah. Well, it's a police state. San Francisco. Yeah, yeah for it's sure. It's a police state. I mean, you're yeah. being told what to think, say, do. And if you if you go against the police state, then you will be turned in. And, you know, we saw it here where, you know, one of our friends, they were turned in for um, something to do with their business. I think they were a lawn company and they were mowing people's right. lawns. I'm like, oh, right. who's mowing lawn with other people? people on a lawnmower. I mean, come on, people. Where's the common sense here? I mean, absolutely yeah. none. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, not that many people. And again, it's, you know, in it's the it all comes down to the consent of the governed. So in an office yeah. in Texas, nobody would have consented or a high enough percentage of people would not have consented that they would have lost too many people and it would have kind of broken the system for a time. So there was no vaccine mandate in San Francisco. Well, you had close to a hundred percent compliance. Right. And a good example of that is, um, I started traveling to Southern Idaho, you know, one mm -hmm. of the most conservative States, especially in the Southern portion where I was at in, in, in the nation. Right. And it was the middle of the pandemic with the mask wearing all the ridiculousness. And I went into a restaurant and, um, nobody's wearing masks. And I said, I just got, and I, because I, I did, I wanted to eat. I was super hungry. I didn't want to, you know, make anybody upset and I didn't get any food. So I waited until I got food, paid everybody. I said, what's the, what's the deal? I just, I, I know that there's a mask mandate in, in Idaho. Um, what's the deal? Well, he said, people in Idaho Falls decided they didn't want to follow it. So everybody just said, heck with it. And so nobody wears a mask. That's a great example. Yeah. But if you're the only one doing that, it's really, exactly. really hard, you know? And in San Francisco, my husband and I were the only ones. We were really, right. it, it was very lonely. The hate directed at us is, it's sort of too intense to even describe. I mean, I um, took my, at the time she must've been four, my four-year-old daughter to the beach one day in San Francisco, unmasked at the beach, no one there. And a woman chased us down and screamed in my face 
um, screamed in my daughter's face that, you know, she would not feel sorry. She said this to my four-year-old. She would not feel sorry for my mother when she died, my daughter, because I was going to kill her by not masking my four-year-old at the beach. I mean, this is the level of insanity we were experiencing in San Francisco. So if people are that unhinged, which they were, I mean, I remember going outside and like people, it was, it was a ghost town and it, 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 like people were so terrified to even be out on the street. They thought they were entering a war zone that they could literally die the minute they stepped across the threshold of their home. You know, our CEO, I don't think he left his house for close to a year. It's people, it's hard to describe how out of sync with the population my family's views were and how we were vilified because of it. You know, they seem sort of sensible now. What's the big deal? She said public schools should open. But it was about as heretical as you can imagine. So, of course, over the last year, you, you, even though you're unemployed, you wanted to stay busy. So you wrote a book. <laughs> it's called Levi's Unbuttoned. And tell us about that book. Go ahead and stream that, Yada. Yeah, it does, um, you know, cover the last very fraught two years of my time at Levi's, but that doesn't really come until the second half. So, you know, it's really a memoir. Um, And it's kind of about my own journey to kind of being confident enough in my own voice and my own perception of reality to use my voice as forcefully as possible to stand up for what I believe in. Um, So, you know, some of my journey in gymnastics, because here's the thing. I grew up in an environment that demanded total silence and obedience from children. This has been a journey for me. It is not easy for me. I'm not combative by nature. I don't like being hated. I like to be liked. This is the opposite. My husband will fight with anyone about anything. He doesn't care. He's, you know, we just are are different. So it's really hard, hard for me to screw up my courage and fight for truth. But I do it because it matters too much. So, you know, it kind of goes through that whole journey because I feel like if I can do it, this kid who grew up in this like insanely abusive obedience instilling environment, then, then anyone can do it. So it's a, hopefully a bit of a uh, exhortation to people to stand up just a little bit every day in their own lives. It's scary, but you can do it. And we need you. We need all of us. Well, I'm excited to read it. Um, I am going to get myself a copy. And writing a book wasn't enough for you. You had to do a production. You had to make a production company, and you're in the process of making a movie. And it's called. I love the name. Say everything productions. Uh, you know, with your name S E Y. Only a marketing genius like yourself could could think of something so appropriate. So tell us about your your production company, and when do you expect this movie to be out? Yeah, um, I, I think I went and set up the production company literally like the day after I quit. I mean, I knew I wanted to make this film. I produced a documentary that came out in 2020 called Athlete A, which is about um, the abuse yeah. in the sport of gymnastics. And it, it won a it won an Emmy in 2020 for Best Investigative Documentary. So I sort of had this brewing in my mind. As soon as I resigned, I went and set up the production company. I probably should have taken a day or two off, but I didn't and got going. And I I can't claim, I don't think I made the name up. I think it was like a collaboration between a friend of mine and my husband that came up with Say Everything. Um, But we've been filming for a year. Uh, We've filmed most of it. And it really is about the impacts 
uh, the impact to children of all ages across geographies in the United States from the prolonged school closures and other restrictions. And, uh, you know, from the most extreme and catastrophic to the more mundane, um, children across the board have been impacted. Absenteeism is an all-time high, dropout rates, mental health, learning loss. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Um, really no child was, was spared. You know, some are coming out of it better than others, but for some there's lifelong consequences. And that, that's the kind of, that's what I, I hope to get people to understand and invite them into, because as you both well know, there was this like story being told, Oh, it's just two weeks. They're resilient. It's just two months. But you know, for a kid who dropped out, this is lifelong. This has changed and altered the trajectory of his life. For a young woman or a teenage girl who ended up in a mental hospital for six months, this has changed the trajectory of her life. Um, so, you know, we want to tell their stories because I don't want people to forget and I want some accountability. And so when do you think the movie will be back? Any idea when the movie will be out? Well... Documentaries take a while. We're almost done filming. Yeah. My hope is the end of the year, but it could be early next awesome. year. Well, you'll have to let us know when um, it gets closer to coming out because we'd love to have you back on our show to talk about the film. Thank you. I yeah. will let you know. So, yeah. So as we wrap this podcast up, Jennifer, I, I think you've made it pretty clear what your passion is, but I would like to ask you, what is your passion? Um. Well, the thing I like to do, I like to tell stories. I, I consider myself, and it's taken me a long time to learn this about myself, but like I'm passionate about storytelling, whether it's books or films or even the work that I did at Levi's, which was to tell real life stories about people who love and, you know, love their Levi's and live in Levi's. I think stories are what move hearts and minds, which is why I'm choosing to make a film and have written a book on this subject rather than. I don't know, go work in a nonprofit or, you know, you know, or run for office or something. I, I love storytelling and I care about truth and I care about children. And so my stories tend to center on those two things. Awesome. Well, you've def definitely helped us realize our goal, uh, Jennifer, which is to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health. You've given them a lot of tools, your book and, and your film coming up, um, where people can can actually uh, read or watch these things and um, you know use some examples that um, to, to change their personal lives. So I appreciate you being on today and sharing your story. And I appreciate you fighting. That's what I like the most is that you're fighting for liberty. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you both for doing the same. And thanks for having me. Yeah. And so listeners and viewers, thank you for tuning in today to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Thursday. We will be streaming live from Alabama at the Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama. We will have Jeff Deist on, the director of the Mises Institute. And we will talk, be talking about um, federal health care and why government health care is expensive lower quality and poor service. So you do not want to miss that. I'm working on the details for the time, but um, think about it Thursday, streaming live from Alabama. So tune into Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you for watching.